This episode of AVXL was recorded on December 3rd, 2020. We're going to talk about HBO Max dropping a big Christmas Day upgrade for Wonder Woman. Steam's hardware survey says a lot about the state of gaming. Lens shift is, my friend, just what does audiophile mean? And don't forget, email ask at AVXL if you got a question for us. Testing, one, two, three. All right. I'm not blowing anything out. Ignorant weasels chewing on your soul. Ignorant weasels. Do you have speed? Yeah. Well, Navy Excel, your guide to the best in home video and audio gear, no matter what your budget is. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. And I am uh, excited about many things this week. Me too. We talked a lot about HBO Max last week and yeah. uh, their apparent upgrade in streaming quality. But you have been kind of fascinated by the stasis in the gaming industry. <laughs> the current status, anyway. Yeah. If you have a PC running the Steam client for gaming... It recently put out a request to do the hardware survey on your system. If you wish to add it to the other data, you can then go check out on the steampower.com website and look at their hardware survey information. And it shows some cool trends. It shows the current state of what everyone's using for that huge gaming platform. The most popular CPUs are still Intel. And in terms of core count, four is the magic number. More people are using four core Intel CPUs by far than any other type of CPU out there currently. And in terms of the GPUs, the GeForce 1060 is still the supreme <laughs> king of the most popular graphics card currently in use today. And if you do scroll way down the list, you will see a 3080 hiding in there from NVIDIA as well. It's a good reminder, I think, for anyone who's maybe thinking of upgrading and the budget's not quite there, go take a look at that survey and realize what most folks are using nowadays for their gaming experience on a personal computer. It's always the resolutions that blow me away. And 1920 by 1080 has been the bulk of the playback for ever at this point. Oh, totally. You know, 1366 by 768 is still the second highest resolution. Oh, that's funny. But 2560 by 1440 is up over 7% now. <laughs> 1080p monitors that can do, say, 144 yeah. hertz or greater, let alone 1440p monitors that can do high refresh rates are becoming more popular. I don't see that trend changing anytime soon. Uh, I will say gaming on a projector in a living room with a full surround sound system is just epic. <laughs> sure is. <laughs> Capable of annoying the entire family. Sometimes on projectors, you'll run into a greater than average level of AV delay. The time it takes for you to do a control input to the time something shows up on a screen. And there are projectors nowadays including a really cool Optoma one I was looking at that actually is focused now on providing a game mode as well as just simply reducing that latency. I was in Costco yesterday. I was having that whole moment of when they push all of the television to within like what feels like six feet of the front doors yeah. for the holiday shopping season. You have to step and over then them. off to your left. <laughs> yeah, you have to like step over the TVs to get in and then dodge the pile of Christmas threes and really strange candy and oddly shaped liqueur bottles. You caught uh, an announcement up on The Verge that Sonos has a Sonos Arc that does not have the microphone, that does not have support for the voice, I mean, like Alexa and Google Assistant, which is cool because it means my wife would not throw it into the backyard. <laughs> it's going to, in this case, save you 50 bucks over the regular model otherwise offering oh, nice. the same audio performance as the regular Sonos Arc. And this Arc SL, this no microphone version, 
is, I think, a great option for many people who may not need that feature in terms of AI assistance being built in Mm -hmm. and save a little bit of money in the process while still getting that excellent audio quality. It's been interesting. I've been in a couple uh, conversations recently where I've I've had, you know, I guess I'm on one extreme where I have some voice activated stuff I use for testing products. Um, but otherwise, my wife will literally throw it through the nearest open or closed window if she finds it in the house. And then other people are like, I haven't touched my thermostat in years. And it's like, well, yeah, I use my phone. But they're like, no, 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 I can talk to it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I think I need to leave my chair as much as possible at this stage of my life. But that might be just me. But uh, do us a favor. Let me know if uh, let us know. Email ask Let us know uh, if you're using voice control what services you're using and what you do with it just out of curiosity because we uh we always want to know what you're out there doing because it helps us know what we should be covering which is a big plus there are many many microphones in this household <laughs> covering of <laughs> covering all of the popular ai assistants <laughs> mostly related to amazon but we do have a nest home thermostat and things like that that are right. also tied in some hue phillips lights uh that are also tied into the system oh now the front door lock is tied into the system <laughs> oh good i can hack my way into your yes. house <laughs> oh don't forget the code or don't forget my phone otherwise i'm not getting in the house <laughs> always awkward oh my goodness uh i think i saw this retweet about high def disc news patty jenkins director of wonder woman 2017's wonder woman tweeted that she was excited to announce that Wonder Woman 84 will be the first film on HBO Max available in 4K Ultra HD, HDR10, Dolby Vision, and Dolby Atmos. Can't wait. In theaters on December 25th and exclusively streaming in the U.S. on HBO Max. Please find the biggest and highest quality screen you can, which for me will probably be in my basement. But this is crazy because we were talking about HBO Max last week. We were talking what appears to be some significant increases in the amount of bandwidth uh, that they were throwing at titles and my experiences uh, having recently watched HBO uh, you know that episode the long night on HBO now and then uh, now at HBO Max and how vastly improved so much of the detail was in the HBO Max experience and then lamenting that there was no 4K HDR Atmos, uh, as so many of HBO Max's competitors have. Uh, and now if you've got an Apple TV 4K, Amazon Fire TV Stick 4K, Amazon Fire TV Cube, the 4K Fire TV Edition, the various smart TVs, Chromecast Ultra, AT&T TV, supported Android TV devices, you can do HBO Max in 4K. You will notice the continuing and glaring absence of Roku on that list. Oh, yeah. Perhaps that will be part of the Christmas... Uh, <laughs> surprise, baby. surprise. It would not surprise me to actually see that come into play before this launches on Christmas Day. Yeah. It'd be nice for Roku users for that. I mean, you, you know, you'll still be able to do HBO now, but, uh, or HBO go. I'm also seeing not any discussion of a price increase for this delivery of service. It seems like, right. cause that was one complaint I had about HBO max at first was it seemed like a premium price product delivering standard 1080p resolution. So you can think of it yeah. as like a Blu-ray edition of streaming quality. And now they're bumping it up to the UHD HDR quality levels, including Atmos Audio. And I don't see any mention of a price increase. So hopefully this is not right. indicative of that. Although with all of these services over time, prices do seem to tick up. Netflix uh, in the premium version, uh, $17.99 per month. 
HBO Max is $14.99 per month, which makes it a bit less expensive. You know, what's crazy about HBO Max is, is this gigantic back catalog that they've brought online. It's going to be interesting to see what quality that streams in and when it streams in it, because they haven't mentioned any other titles coming out in 4K or HDR10 or Dolby Vision or Dolby Atmos. Exactly. The quote that I saw was, HBO Max will expand these capabilities to further films and TV series, as well as adding support for additional devices throughout 2021, which makes me wonder if they're you know, re-encoding or redoing the telecine on a lot of older properties. You know, And, and having spent a, a fair amount of time in HBO now in the past few years, I can think of a lot of titles from their catalog that could use uh, some help <laughs> in the quality department. That would be cool to actually see a report from them saying, hey, you know, on the back end, yeah. even though we're not delivering this in HDR, most of our content is capable of being scaled to that or put through the workflow again and done to, a, mm -hmm. done to either a Dolby Vision or an HDR10 standard. Yeah. This is clearly their test in terms of let's work with this one title. It's probably going to mm -hmm. look freaking fantastic. One hopes. I'm curious also to see what sort of bit rates they end up using if it's close to that current about 13, 14 megabit stream right. they're currently pushing to some users out there. Otherwise, we'll if, if I were an HBO Max subscriber, I think this is just good news. It's showing that the company is at least focused on this for one title and to get it rolled out. It says it's going to be in theaters on Christmas Day, and then I assume right. the streaming is going to be at the same point. That is the theory. Yeah, that's my theory. A great response from uh, Anthony Thompson on Twitter, because uh, he did an eye roll and put finally in quotation marks to my tweet that was, holy crap, HBO Max is finally getting HDR and Atmos. And I was like, you know, okay, I get it. You know, HBO Max already looks better than HBO Now, because, you know, I've been whining about HBO Now for years at this point. Anthony responded, he said, I look at it from a broadcast engineer perspective where the distribution equipment to handle UHD, HDR is still relatively new and scarce. I think there's an argument to be made that HBO Max should have launched with support, but I think after adding it six months later is fine. And I get it. Like, you know, we also need a lot more HDR TVs in homes. We need uh, more Atmos setups in homes. Six months isn't that long. The problem is, is I find it difficult to separate four plus years of HBO now looking worse and worse and worse compared to other streaming services and the shiny new dividing line that is HBO Max, especially since, for example, on my iPhone, it just magically became HBO Max one day when I restarted my phone. So there's a continuum there. How many years have we had HDR in 4K yeah. through a service, say, like Netflix? Granted, they're at the forefront of doing this sort of thing. Right. That, again, is the target that all of these premium streamers should be focused on is making that content look as good as possible especially on these newer tvs that can really take advantage of these formats this stuff just looks awesome when viewed on an appropriate screen say like an oled yeah. or a high-end lcd it does it's pretty crazy and uh, yeah, I'm going to give a shout out to Anthony, everybody else who tweets or emails, ask at avxl.com, especially if you work on the professional side of the industry, because you have perspective and knowledge that we don't have and some really good points to make. Shout out to Justin over at High Def Disc News. A lot of people did their reviews of the Lord of the Rings, the motion picture trilogy, pretty much like 15 minutes after they got the shipment. <laughs> he actually went through and went... I'm going to affectionately say berserk on this review. It was really exciting because it fixes a lot of the flaws that were in the Blu-ray version of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This is not cheap, this 4K UHD Blu-ray edition. I think it's. Uh, I think I pre-ordered it for something in the neighborhood of $90. 
I am very, very exciting to see this uh, for no other reason than because there's there were some issues with previous versions, one of which involved things looking particularly green. I'll just leave it at that. But uh, the stills he has up on High Def Disc News look absolutely fantastic. It's 239 to 1 aspect ratio. Each version of each film has Dolby Vision HDR10. These were all shot on 35mm using Super 35 Cinematic. And apparently they've received new 4K masters. And the remastering was overseen or supervised by Peter Jackson. This is a 9-disc set that covers the theatrical and the expanded version of each cut. And these are all in like BD-100s. The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings, which is, and let's, let's be honest, it's a long-ass movie, but it's using 85.41 gigabytes, he notes, of a 100-gigabyte BD-100 disc. And 84 gigabytes of that is a theatrical cut. That's where streaming cannot compete in terms of just raw bit for <laughs> audio and video. It's yeah. impressive. And with this release... The thing I notice about anything between regular non-HDR content and HDR content nowadays is that color performance, that step up into a wider color palette with more natural, realistic colors really can Mm -hmm. make that movie look more compelling. Yeah. It's a fantasy, whatever, (laughs) hobbit tale. But still, when you look at this, not only will you have those incredible highlights, but the scene overall, it feels more like you're looking through a window rather than onto a screen. Yeah. I appreciate it. He points out it's missing that green tint that was a problem with the Blu-rays. I'm ex- I mean, I'm really excited to see this because I'm a fan of the movies. My boys have seen them a little bit, but they haven't seen them that on anything that's going to look like this or, or have that sort of theatrical experience. So I'm pretty excited about that. And a shout out to Justin for all the work he put into those reviews. They're pretty, pretty impressive. I was laughing. I texted uh, Robert the other night and I was just like, basically uh, whinging that I had used a lot of keystoning and things looked a little fuzzy on my projector. You know, I remounted, uh, we, we got a cat. We got a, a little cat who's added like two pounds in the last two weeks and has figured out how to get up to the ceiling where my projector was precariously positioned. So I now have my, I'm pretty sure I can do pull-ups off my projector mount right now. Excellent. It's <laughs> the way it should I'm be. Saying there was... <laughs> I test every wall mount by hanging off of it myself. So, <laughs> And I am not a light character. <laughs> I'm of moderate weight. Yeah, I had access to a steel I-beam and I tapped it for some largest bolts I could fit in the mount. And then I put backing bolts on the other side of it. So I'm pretty sure this isn't going anywhere. Good. I angled the projector much more than I should have. And I used uh, a lot of keystoning, which was really not the right choice in the era of projectors with mad lens shift. I used to have a, a projector that did optical keystoning, which did not negatively impact the image, but this did not look, I was convinced that it wasn't right. And what I didn't realize uh, until I reread the manual was that there's a huge amount of lens shift in this projector, like 45, 47% of the horizontal range. It can do a huge amounts of shifting to left and right. It can do 96% of the maximum vertical range. So you can move this projector a huge amount into, or I should say you can shift it horizontally and vertically a huge amounts without negatively impacting image quality. Exactly. You need the screen level. You need the projector level. You need it centered because as soon as you take it off center, then there's really no other way to correct it uh, other than by kind of doing things that make the image problematic. But I was kind of blown away. It's nice. 
A digital yeah. keystone function on any projector, if you enable it at all, will reduce the effective resolution of the picture you see by half. That's just something to keep in mind. Like if it's a 1080p projector, suddenly you're effectively making it a 720p projector if you enable any of the digital keystoning that right. is remapping pixels into a smaller square uh, is one way to think about it. Like you mentioned, as long as you have that projector centered to the screen, it helps, of course, because some projectors I've worked with recently don't offer the horizontal lens shift. They only do vertical. So that becomes even more critical to make sure that lens is right along the center line of the screen. And then mm -hmm. when you point it toward the screen, you have to have that perfectly perpendicular to the screen itself in terms of the light coming out of the projector in the screen. You don't want to just yeah. angle it any which way up or down. That's where you then kick in that lens shift function that also can literally... Once you get the geometry on the projected image squared right. away, regardless if it's hitting the screen or not, you then literally drive it around with the horizontal and vertical lens shift controls to get that picture right on yeah. the screen. Using any of these functions, including things like if you have to ramp up the zoom a lot, like you really need to use the maximum level of that zoom control, mm -hmm. or if you have to also use the maximum adjustments available for something like horizontal and vertical lens shift, you will see a reduction in overall light output. Right. It's so convenient and nice in terms of being able to put the projector where you want and then move that image to get it right on the screen, squared up perfectly. For me, it's, I couldn't imagine buying a projector that doesn't have at least vertical lens shift. Yeah, I mean, the color looks amazing on this. Uh, at some point, I'm, I'm gonna have to get this calibrated someday. Someday I will get it calibrated. Uh, someday I will get any number of things done in this house, but the, uh, I'm really delighted also that it's now in a position where the cat can't destroy it because that would have been spendy. <laughs> Excellent. Always a good thing. The pets do not know their limits. <laughs> it's been fun playing around with this thing. And uh, I, I still got to do one more tweak to the projection screen. Uh, I also was laughing because I forgot that sort of dance where you're like adjusting the zoom, adjusting the position, adjusting the zoom, adjusting the position, adjusting the zoom. It's like, okay, everything's perfect now. Uh, and then you look at something and you're like, oh, I need to put three washers on this side of the projection screen because it's two degrees off. And, and that little bit of pixelation, that little bit of light <laughs> over the edge here is driving me insane. It's good to get all of that squared away. I got a really good question for Robert McRock007 tweeted, love your AV advice. Just got a Vizio 5 series. Apparently no overscan setting, only a picture size setting with vertical and horizontal adjustment. How should I set it in order to get the best picture detail? Well, you may have nothing to do, actually. I've found many Vizio TVs turn overscan off by default with most video signals. And it's really odd that there isn't a control whatsoever other than some apparent very manual adjustment for vertical and horizontal zoom levels. I would immediately find a test pattern that shows you an overscan image at like 1080i or 720p or 4K. And those you can pick up for free. You could probably do that online and just download something. Any of the test discs I've ever used incorporate that, including mm -hmm. the AVS 709 calibration disc that you can download right from the yeah. AVS forum. That has one of those test patterns right on it, just to check and see if all the pixels in a particular video resolution are being displayed. And they should be for any TV made in the last few years. There should be a way to make that work. It's a beautiful thing. Ooh, this just in. HBO just tweeted out that Wonder Woman's release is for theaters and streaming on the 25th. They have made it official. 
It's a brave new world, people. Yeah. It's a brave new world. And DVD sales were way up. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Over Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Every new movie is going to be released online the same time as any any theater or would-be theatrical release. Definitely, definitely changing. Ed posted up on patreon.com slash avxl. And hey, I want to give a shout out to all of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting us. And if you want to help financially support avxl, do us a favor, head over to patreon.com slash avxl and become a patron. Ed writes, guys, I've enjoyed your work for years on various shows. Finally signed up to support you. Thank you so much. One question about a 4K projector. I've been researching a while to update my old ViewSonic 720p projector. I was looking at Vava and Optoma, and then I came across a great price on the recently discontinued Dell S718QL. The original price was over $5,000. It's a 5,000 lumen projector. I picked it up for $2,400 for the Dell warranty. Thoughts? I've never heard you mention this projector. So this is a short throw laser 4K projector, claims like 20,000 hours battery life, 5,000 lumens. Uh, 20,000 hours of lamp life. <laughs> lamp life, pardon me. That would be 20,000 lumens would be extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, I, I sit embarrassed in my basement. 5,000 lumens of light output for 2,400 bucks with a warranty on a discontinued item. I think that sounds pretty good, especially for the light yeah. output. That is a very bright projector. And if you were planning to put that in a well-lit room with something like mm -hmm. an ambient light rejecting screen, I think it would be a really good match. It is HDR 10 compatible and it has HDMI. It looks like, what was it? Two point something with uh, HDCP 2.2. So it should be compatible yeah. with all of the high def players and devices out there. No problem. If you're not already using an ultra short throw projector, do take a look at the specs page for any projector like this, just to make sure that you're able to place this exactly where it needs to be for a particular screen size. Mm -hmm. The difference between having this thing produce a hundred inch image to 130 inch image is a matter of inches in terms of where you place right. it. And it should also be at a specific distance from the bottom of the screen if you really want to get this set up right. There are adjustable feet typically on these projectors that let you get it balanced just so, but it's a little challenging to make one of these look just right. Right. Especially with an ambient light rejecting screen. But otherwise, yeah, the light output is good. The resolution's great. Apparently a pretty good contrast. The only thing I see missing is yeah. there's no explicit mention of anything like an expanded color palette. Something on the lines of like DCI color that you would find on modern televisions that are able to produce more saturated red, blue, and green. I think this would still look pretty good, especially given that light output. Yeah. But if you're looking for the ultimate in color performance, that's probably where they're sacrificing things to make it, to make it what it is for that price. It's crazy. I think this may have actually launched at $6,000 when it was first released, you know, it's certainly been available for anywhere from like 3,500 to $5,000. I've seen similar designs from Epson, Hisense, yeah. and others. Even a similar, these ultra short throw laser projectors, especially when they look like a large console item. This is a fairly large projector as well. Uh, I believe it weighs close to 30 pounds. 33.07 pounds. And it incorporates <laughs> decent audio. So, you know, for that extra size, at least, yeah. you're getting some a little thump with it. HDMI 2.0, two HDMI 1.4 ports, RJ45 jack. It's not bad. For that price, I think you got to, for that brightness, for that price with 4K with HDR, that's not bad at all. I'm actually looking for a color spec, and I can't find a color spec. 
It just says colors, 1.07 yeah. billion. And that typically <laughs> means they would rather not talk about it. I simply hope it is at least Rec 709 yeah. and not slightly below that. Hopefully it exceeds the standard color spec yeah. we've been using for years. They're not bragging about it. So I assume then that <laughs> it is not doing something like DCI or greater. Like your typical LG OLED television hits about 99% of DCI P3. Right. That is what is the color spec. That's about, I believe, 26% larger than Rec. 709 mm -hmm. or BT 709. I find that just as critical for viewing of modern yeah. formats. But I see the number 5000 for lumens and that makes me uh, quite happy as well. It's going to be a huge, vast, epic leap from that 720p view Sonic. It's going to be brighter. It's going to have more color. It's going to have a lot more detail. You should be pretty stoked, I think. JJ4884, who asks us a lot of questions, and you can ask us questions too. If you email us, ask at avxcel.com or tweet at Robert Heron or at Patrick Norton or at avxcel. Um, he had a question I couldn't resist. He said, is the general goal of an audiophile trying to keep the soundstage as neutral as possible? Do you have any bad headphones that you remember listening to and or have? Monoprice makes a, a set of like 16, depending on where you buy them and when you buy them, they're like 16 to $22. They're very plasticky, but they're an over-ear, a simple over-ear headphone, and they are hard to kill, and they sound quite good. And uh, they're about as cheap a headphone as you can get and get a pretty good audio experience. That inspired me to go out and buy, at the time, all of Monoprice's sub-$50 in-ear monitors, all their sub $50 earbuds. It was one of the worst audio experiences I have ever had. <laughs> I have heard a lot of bad headphones. I have heard some tremendously weak headphones that cost one or $2,000, either because they were had a particularly obnoxious tuning, or in one case, it turned out they said it was finished, but it was actually a beta, and it was a very peculiar experience um, that they couldn't really explain, but it was uh, an electrostatic headphone that they said they were going to sell for about $40,000 with its fancy amplifier and stuff, and its built-in DAC, but it made music sound like it was coming coming from a two-inch ball in the center of your skull. And I like soundstage. <laughs> Not good. And I like natural. It was bizarre. It was a very peculiar experience. Uh, I understand that they did a bunch of tuning and tweaks and made it sound a lot better. But yeah, I, I have talked about a lot of bad headphones over the years. Uh, right now, I've, I've been listening to a bunch of true wireless earbuds, and I am tremendously disappointed by the audio performance on some of these, given the price tag. I'll talk about that more in the future. Is soundstage something you consider how the audio is being presented? Not so much the sound quality, but more like, are you able to do relative positioning of where the sounds are coming yeah. from? Is that more what soundstage is? Because for me, it's like, yes. as long as they're not exaggerating the sound, right? I can instantly tell that like, oh, this is just a bass heavy headphone, but I don't, that has really nothing to do with soundstage, I would take. You can argue that in-ears have no soundstage and headphones have a limited soundstage, and I would disagree with that. But it, essentially, when you're talking about soundstage, it is the three-dimensional space that's created by the sound. Right. You know, when, you, when you're sitting in front of stereo speakers and mentally you're looking for the lead singer directly in between those singers and the guitar players over to the right and the bass players over to the left and they have a physical, those sounds have a physical presence in space. Like that's sound staging. And some sound staging, 
I, I should talk about this. How much control next would you really is... have over that as well? If you're trying to keep it as accurate as possible, I mean, you already have literally perfect separation with headphones or in yeah. Ears. Some recordings don't have much in the way of soundstage. Some recordings have a lot of soundstage. Better speakers that are properly arranged have a more ability to reproduce the soundstage. Or, yeah, um, the production I, of that particular track seems to be the yeah. the key. The reproduction. Yeah. I'm going to put a note for, for next week's episode, for episode 126. And one of the things we should talk about, Brent Butterworth is an audio reviewer that we both know and respect. And he he's somebody I met when I was uh, very young and had a huge influence on me. But he has a list of tracks that he uses in quick succession that tells him a lot about what he's listening to and how good a job it's doing of recreating. Like he listens to this track because it has this incredibly low bass line and that tells him about the quality of the bass coming from the speaker or the headphone. And he has this one that creates these instruments in space. And if they're properly reproduced, they're literally hanging in space in front of you. Let me pull that out to talk about next week. Cool. I did something similar with video analysis where it's like I'm always looking at these same four or five scenes in Blu-rays or DVDs. And I finally one day just yeah. said, rather than pull out four or five discs to figure this out, I'm going to rip all of these perfectly, take just those sections that I want to yeah. look at and make them all back to back and then just roll it through a system. Yeah. I should dig that disc up. <laughs> There's some good stuff on there. The general goal of an audio file has changed a lot. I think of the idea of an audio file starts to really evolve after World War II. You have a bunch of people who have spent a bunch of time doing a bunch of terrible things in, a, in, in difficult places, and you have a whole lot of technology, some of which maybe came out of World War II or that people were exposed to for the first time, and you had a lot of discretionary income and a lot of people moving into houses where they had more space. And the general goal, right, was there was this idea that I'm going to have recordings that sound like live events. And part of that was really critical about that, right? Because I remember at, at Rocky Mountain Audio Fest a few years ago, I heard this gentleman talking about, I swear he was talking about, he kind of got into this and he had gotten to this point where he was like recording and reproducing the dropping of a spoon on a floor so that you could close your eyes and really feel the spoon dropping on the floor. And I'm like, that's kind of some wild ass stuff. For me, it is recording and reproducing like a musical event, whether it was crafted in a studio or live, right? In World War II, you have all these motivated folks that love music and they have access to technology and money and they started trying to perfect the reproduction of live music, which was everywhere in the 40s and 50s, especially post-World War II. There would have been like 20 places with bands. You would have walked into a restaurant. People would have been playing music. Big bands were playing. We can't really relate today to the amount of musicians that were working, you know, five, six, seven nights a week back then. Music was everywhere. For a lot of people, also, this challenge for audiophiles was reproducing orchestras, which are a full range and intensity of music from 25, 30 hertz all the way up through, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 hertz are probably like the majority of the instruments, not counting like harmonics and stuff. And today, audiophile is associated with like people that love spending more and more for smaller and smaller gains in their audio experience. That's what I say when I'm feeling rude. But it's basically, it's people who want to enjoy their music better. It's also become better at lower prices. Yeah. In terms of somebody outspending their neighbor just for a small gain. Just the yeah. fact that nowadays, speaker technology, speaker design, and the sources we can not only have, but the way we even right. connect it or bring that audio and amplify it to the speakers and then eventually to our ears is better than it's right. ever been. 
I have a hard time just saying this is audiophile or this is not. It has so much to do with so many aspects, including the room environment and the equipment and the source material and all of that. (laughs) I don't see it as just one thing or another. If you give me a square room that has bare sheetrock walls and a bare sheetrock ceiling, I can make the best speakers in the planet sound like crap. Yeah, for me, <laughs> the word audiophile nowadays is more like you're aware of the pitfalls. You have a yeah. general understanding of what is an accurate reproduction of a particular piece of content, right. be it audio or video. And yeah, having some standard, hopefully, that you can compare that to. It's tough on audio, right? With broadcast video, there is a very specific set of documented relationships and you know you have test equipment and you can manipulate the projector or the television so that it gives you the best possible reproduction of the broadcast standards that have been set down by engineers and a lot of audio folks really don't like the idea of objective testing or people that are talking about how important their $75 speaker cable ends are that they really brightened up the whole presentation I doubt it works that way, but it makes them really, really happy. For me, I'm looking for accurate reproduction, which, yeah, means fairly flat and neutral. Maybe a little a little bass uh, over the treble. There are a lot of people that consider themselves headphone audiophiles, especially, that they love extra treble, uh, either because it adds a certain amount of sparkle or excitement, uh, or maybe also because they've they've kind of torched their, their ability to hear high frequencies and they need to turn it up louder to hear them. And that's an interesting question because one of the things they're doing over at Dolby that I learned about earlier this year um, when I was doing some work with Dolby was they basically have a scientist who's studying how people's experiences and how people experience media so they can understand how to make it more accessible. And somebody who's been living in the desert actually experiences video like like measurably in their brain from somebody who has been living, say, in lower Manhattan and dealing with high traffic and crazy amounts of humanity, which is some really wild stuff to consider and way beyond our pay scale here at AVXL. Indeed. (laughs) I actually finally picked up a copy of Floyd Tools, uh, Sound Reproduction, the Acoustics and Psychoacoustics of Loudspeakers and Rooms. It was published by the Audio Engineering Society. It's not really about headphones, but it's about uh, how to create the best possible sound reproduction and what goes into that uh, to accentuate what Robert was saying. It's not just the speakers, it's the room they're in. It's where they're positioned. It's, it's the surfaces in the room and how they all work together to impact the sound. It's a really good read. I do not see this as a money thing in terms of you have yeah. to hit a certain dollar amount before it no. becomes audiophile. I think it's just first principles about yeah. how to make the gear you have work as best as possible knowing all the ins and outs, be it the speakers themselves, the room, Mm -hmm. or the source material. Yeah. It kind of comes down to that. I want everyone to be an audiophile, and everyone can. And a videophile, for that matter. (laughs) At pretty much any price point you can think of, there's a way to do it. Yeah. I think it's what part of what motivates Robert and I is we've been in so many situations, especially for me, people are like, oh, you know, I don't have the $4,000 headphones. Like you don't need the $4,000 headphones because this $200 set of headphones gets you like 90% of the way to the $4,000 headphones. Even with speakers, you can build your own speakers, good speakers Mm -hmm. for low cost Mm -hmm. and impress Mm -hmm. your friends if you're a little handy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just a little. Impress your friends, amaze your neighbors, and satisfy your budgetary Satisfy yourself. Constraints. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's become a dirty word audiophile in some ways because of of the possibly because of the way people behave in online forums or on reddit on a bad day there's some amazing people out there that want people to have a really good experience and there's some people that really believe in some weird stuff a lot of which is around spending thousands of dollars on cable which i like to mock because i'm cruel (laughs) good cable good wires good everything not wrong with good cable I just picked up some new HDMI cables. I finally got them in and I'm enjoying them. They're a little beefy. They have the, uh, what is it? The iron chokes on the ends. I forget what those are called. I was kind of impressed at how thick, because with the 1080p cables I've been using, they're all the super thin ones. And then I got this this new high-end, high-speed, not high-end, it's monoprice, not to dismonoprice. I, I, you know, I spent $40 on a cable because it was 25 feet long and it was like a three-eighths of an inch thick. It's like, oh, I remember when, in the bad old days when there were cables like this. This one actually bends, unlike the ones that used to yank the television off the table. I was buying three <laughs> packs of 10-footers and three-footers, or one-meter and three-meter cables. I have a nice stash now, so no worries there. Oh, it's always good to have extra cables. Oh, hey, last night I was doing, what was it? I was doing HDR10 and Dolby Vision calibration on an LG OLED. I never want to think about if the cable has enough bandwidth or not. Granted, what I'm pushing through it, even with those formats, they're just simple test patterns, usually not dynamic unless I'm changing them. That's about as dynamic as it gets. But it's just nice to know that whatever cable I'm using in my current arsenal is now rated for uh, 4K HDR, uh, 48 gigabit, whatever. Yeah. They're downright cheap, really. Yeah. The Monoprice Certified Premium HDMI cable... 25 feet, 4K, 60 hertz, 18 gigabit per second. I spent a whopping $30 on it. Uh, but it actually, I have full 10-bit 422 going from my Apple TV to my projector now. Nice. My Crobus subsampling is maxed out for my equipment. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Always good. I am loving the Roku Ultra, the new one I have. I was actually flipping back between different services. Some was in HDR, some was in... BT709, some was in Dolby Vision, some was in Dolby Atmos, and uh-huh. it's just working great. I have no problem with that with that streaming product and the variety of sources I throw at it. Yeah, we should talk about Chroma next week, just because it makes my head hurt. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is, most folks don't have to worry about it at all. Right. Most everything is 420 in terms of yeah. consumables. And settings like that 422 that's available in certain products, or if it's like a PC or, in this case, game consoles that are actually computer output, style output, it's nice when you can run those at either full RGB or something like a 444 Chroma, effectively no color compression. So basically, I I spent $30 to get 422 out of my Apple TV, and it won't visually impact my experience at all. See, the funny thing is, I have that (laughs) setting enabled too, but I'm always thinking, it's like, well, all the content is 420. It's all being converted within the TV back to RGB. So, okay, I'm letting the Roku do it from 420 to 422, and then the TV will take the 422 and make it 444. Hopefully that extra step didn't introduce any oddities, but yeah, I don't worry about it that much unless I see something funky, and I see no funk. I will say, like my synchro, the the syncing between my projector and my AVR is vastly improved by the new cable. Oh, good! Moving between channels and and changing stuff has been kind of crazy. If you eliminated, a, it sounds like a handful of hiccups or quirks in the previous system right. by simply replacing one cable affordably, 
that's where I suddenly get very happy. It's like, okay, we figured yeah. it out. This was it's a not weak driving link. me mad. Yes. Like ah. that projector will do 444 uncompressed, which I don't have a source for. But I if mean, I connect a PC to it, everything's an ready. RGB device. I mean, every every <laughs> display device can do 444 internally and right. RGB. I can't think of any TV that can't accept those. It's just that most of our source material is originally authored or at least distributed to you in a color compressed format. And it's very rare to find any content that's not, save for like the video right. game examples and other things I mentioned. But for broadcast video, streaming video, I don't see anybody bragging about breaking the 420 color compression just for saving space. That's really what it comes down to. And that's the way it's been for a long time. It's a beautiful thing. I'm just happy my USB issues are over. So, uh, HDMI might be fun, but I was having USB issues related to calibration devices. I was mentioning, I think, or I had mentioned last week or so about having an issue with one of my color meters. Almost certain it was the meter itself. And after changing ports a few times for its USB connection and then finally buying a really good USB 3 hub that's also powered <laughs> and plugging it into a USB 3 port that's right on the motherboard, suddenly I'm having no problems. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. I did learn a few things along the way. That was, it was nice. There are some new features in my calibration software that I am very, very interested in figuring out. Since there is almost zero documentation about some of the arcane things I'm digging up. <laughs> it's okay. It's always exciting when you're working your way through the sub menus with your torch in one hand and your Seriously. Indiana Jones. I didn't even have a other. question about this one <laughs> setting. And then suddenly I find like, oh, this setting's been totally changed. Oh, there's some automatic analysis function. What the hell is any of this? And it's like, I can find nothing, nothing. I got to like email the company going, hey, uh, should I touch this? 90% <laughs> of the time they're like ah oh, don't bother with that <laughs> that was just something we left in there dear god you'll kill us all don't touch that switch lunacy lunacy this lunacy ladies and gentlemen you've been listening to is called AV Excel we talk about a home theater and audio we talk about stereo we talk about 4k we talk about gaming we talk about the stuff you do when you're in the living room or in the privacy of your bedroom or wherever it is you consume audio or video except of course in the car we don't really talk about that very much. Yeah, let's not even start that. We have Wait. enough madness ah. to deal with at this point. <laughs> AVXL.com is the website. If you want to subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, if it's your first time here, do us a favor, subscribe. Search for A-V-E-X-C-E-L on your favorite podcatching tool. If you really, really like the show and you want to help support it financially, do us a favor, go over to patreon.com slash AVXL. We would appreciate your contribution. Check your inbox from messages from Patreon from AVXL this week if you are a patron. And uh, as always, thank you so much for listening to the show. I'm Patrick Norton. Hey, I am Robert Heron. We'll catch you next week on AVXL. <laughs>